Imagine a world with computers so powerful they could process problems which would take today's computers thousands of years to compute and reduce that time to seconds. Quantum computing offers this possibility. In this episode of Market Hunt, we'll discuss the ideas, technology, and market opportunities behind quantum computing. For anybody who's really on the sidelines looking into what's happening in hardware and quantum computing, it's a very exciting time because everything is in flux and all of these technologies are rapidly developing and it really does sort of look a little bit like a horse race where you're trying to understand who's out in front and do they have the ability to stay out in front. On this episode of Market Hunt, we chat with Andrew Fersman, co-founder and CEO of One Qubit. Stay tuned. Entrepreneurship's hard. You need to have support there. We fundamentally have to learn how to live our lives differently. We can't keep going the way we have. It's not like Google can kind of move in and then take the entire market. Not yet, right? It's a real balancing act, which requires a bit of insanity, frankly. But I mean, some people are into that stuff, I guess. You know, the size of the market. That's really all you've got. We're coming up with some pretty interesting ideas. We've solved it. Solved (laughs) everything. We've solved it all. And now a message from our sponsor, IE Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub is a website dedicated to promoting learning and exchanges on international entrepreneurship. Watch video case studies, listen to podcasts, and much more. If you are an education professional looking for course content, an academic researcher seeking research material, or someone interested in business innovation, check out IE Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub focuses on innovation ecosystems and firms who commercialize their technologies in international markets. Let's listen in to a video case study featuring PrevTech Microbia. Everything started with uh, a need. The veterinarian called at the reference laboratory for E. coli, different veterinarians. We have a problem, post-winning diarrhea, that is more severe than in the past and the antibiotics don't work anymore. Then we need a solution for this. That's Eric Nadeau of PrevTech Microbia. PrevTech develops vaccines to address E. coli outbreaks in swine. Nadeau started as a fundamental scientific researcher at the University of Montreal's epidemiology department in the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine. He understood the importance of overuse of antibiotics in treating animals. But the decision to use a live bacterial vaccine versus antibiotics isn't an easy one. When the producer face a disease, he will look at different product or different strategies. And we are calculating everything at the level of cents, not dollars. To reach farmers, Nadeau had to understand their decision-making process. The farmers were making decisions on cost down to the nearest penny. PrevTech's vaccine was more expensive than antibiotic solutions currently available. He needed to find a way to contrast the vaccine PrevTech had developed with these antibiotics. This was no easy task. He knew he had to be patient. You took the decision, let's go on antibiotics, but I'm pretty sure in six months you will call me because the antibiotics will not work anymore. You will go on the vaccine and you will have the insurance that the problem is solved. You can sleep on it and work on other problems you have. How did PrevTech, a small company born out of a spin-off of a research project at the University of Montreal's Veterinary School, build itself into a full-blown company? Find out more at the end of the show. 
You can also check out the PrevTech Microbia video case study by visiting ie-knowledgehub.ca. And now, back to the show. When comparing classical and quantum computers, a good metaphor could be of use. Dr. Shohini Ghosh, Wilfrid Laurier University physicist, wants us to think of classical and quantum computers the way we think of a candle and a light bulb. She says, quote, The light bulb isn't just a better candle. It's something completely different. Quantum computing today is at the state where classical computers were when they were first being built decades ago. It's an exciting time. The industry is being pulled by the promise of quantum-enabled technologies, which will dramatically impact the fields of drug discovery, cryptography, telecommunications, material sciences, and financial modeling, to name but a few. Deal-making among quantum computing companies is at an all-time high. Capital invested in global companies focused on quantum computing and technology has reached $2.5 billion so far this year, according to financial data firm PitchBook. That's up from $1.5 billion in all of 2020. It's been predicted that the quantum tech ecosystem, consisting of software and consulting companies, hardware manufacturers, and quantum enabling technology companies, could be worth $18 billion by 2024. In terms of patents for quantum hardware, companies like IBM and Canada's D-Wave lead the pack. On the quantum computing software side, IBM, Microsoft, and Google are out in front. Looking at countries overall, China dominates the U.S. by a score of 2 to 1, with more than 3,000 patents in the quantum technology field. On this episode of Market Hunt, we speak with Andrew Fersman, co-founder and CEO of OneQubit. This episode is full of concepts relating to quantum mechanics, which might require a bit more research to comprehend. Feel free to explore the episode transcript for links to further reading on topics discussed in this podcast. Andrew starts us off by describing the raison d'être of OneQubit, Are you ready? Let's go. One Qubit is really a company that was founded in order to answer the question of why do we need more powerful computers and what will these more powerful computers look like and how will we actually employ them to do meaningful work? And of course, we're extremely excited about uh, the advances within quantum computation. And we see our long-term goal, uh, you know, what I would think of as success would be a future world in which a significant portion of um, the workload of uh, high-performance computing is being performed on the back end by um, quantum computing uh, devices and processors that do not look like what we're using today. Uh, being able to actually draw that through line from hard industrial problems to new types of computation. And if one qubit was the facilitator that was really enabling that work to happen, um, I think I would consider our work here a success. So in a, in, in a very mercantile sense, you're almost like a broker for picking the best quantum solutions to solve uh, some of industry's toughest problems. Can you describe perhaps what kind of problems you are attacking at OneCubit? What kind of links you're having with industry? Yeah, thank you. I think that um, I would say that OneCubit is very interested in performing that intermediary role, but actually we also really think about being in the middle between um, those you know, new types of devices and these very hard problems 
also really helps us to be able to craft those solutions on the software side, but also to give insights to uh, the architectures of these forthcoming devices in order to be able to say, for example, you know, if your device doesn't have the ability to improve this problem, then our partner at this company is not interested in this processor. And so we like to think that by being in the middle, we actually have the ability to shape both the applications and the hardware, and we kind of spread ourselves out from that middle position. Um, a very concrete example is, uh, you know, the work that we believe will be changed around how new materials and uh, advanced material um, discovery and design progresses. Um, and so, you know, most people know that quantum computing as an idea actually dates back a, as early as the 1980s, where famously Richard Feynman suggested that if you're going to try and do computation to understand how the physical world works, if the physical world is based on, you know, quantum information processing, then we should probably build quantum information processors in order to simulate the real world. Essentially saying, you know, let's cut out the middleman and instead of having to try and translate the behavior that we see in the real world into a form that's amenable to the types of computers that we've already built, um, instead we should build new types of computers that compute using the same principles that really animate the universe. And um, although that sounds pretty heady, you can actually, uh, you know, take a very clear um, example and just say, you know, one of one qubit's um, best partners and customers is the uh, materials company Dow. Dow has a lot of people that it employs um, to work in laboratories now alongside robots and, and other advanced devices. But really, they're kind of doing the same sorts of work that you would have been familiar with if you were a chemist from, you know, the 1800s or the 1900s, essentially, you know, answering the question of what happens if I pour this vial into that beaker. Um, and the reason that this is uh, sort of an interesting paradigm is because if you think about almost any other area of human endeavor, we've kind of moved away from trying it out in the real world as a first step and we typically will do some sort of simulation in a simulated computer world. Uh, an example I love to use is just thinking about, you know, building an airplane and thinking about um, how we don't do the Wright Brothers thing anymore of building a model, throwing it off a cliff and hoping that it flies. Instead, we have all of these advanced simulated environments where we can build a simulated plane in a simulated world that all exists in a computer. And then to be able to have a great intuition and, and very good guidance around how to build that plane in order to make sure that it gets, uh, you know, the best qualities of lift and flight. We don't really do that in the material space right now because the ability for us to create simulated environments for the emergence of, say, chemistry from physics um, is just significantly lower fidelity currently than what's necessary in order to design new materials instead of discovering them. Mm -hmm. And by taking that process and really moving into uh, a, an ability to simulate 
the quantum world and to simulate the emergence of chemistry from physics inside this simulated environment, we can really progress advanced materials to the same paradigm that almost every other industry has followed. And that's one of the things that we see as an early win for quantum computing. You said that quantum computing is the first real revolution uh, in computing. Why is this? And the reason that I say that quantum computing is the first real computing revolution, um, it's because, of course, you know, you, you could say that the first computing revolution was going from no computers to uh, computers. And, and uh, and that's absolutely, you know, an incredible advance for humanity and the capabilities of, of our calculating uh, abilities. But every advancement in computing that has really come from the first electromechanical devices through to vacuum tubes and transistors and integrated circuits, all of those different paradigms are kind of better, faster, cheaper, more reliable versions of the same paradigm of computing. And quantum computing is not just an evolution of that same paradigm. It's really about computing with new fundamental units of computation. And those fundamental units are essentially using quantum information instead of classical information to compute. And that just gives you a very rich and diversified set of problems that are amenable to quantum computation. And so in our view, um, it's not as though quantum computers are going to disrupt all of the things that we do with classical computers. Instead, we think of quantum computers as augmenting what's possible to compute in addition to all the classical computing that we have right now. So the reason that we think of it as a bit of a revolution is it's almost like a completely new type of computing tool that will be kind of bolted onto our existing computing capabilities in order to make it so that humanity has more computing capabilities and compute or can compute different types of problems, which are sort of forever beyond the reach of our current types of computer. I can see the acrobatics in what one qubit is doing in essence because you have such a proximity to the hardware uh, manufacturers of these quantum computers, but you're also doing the translation of what those potential computers can be doing and attempting to create software in order to solve real industry problems that are out there. Explain the quantum hardware ecosystem as it stands right now. I know that, let's say, if, for example, if we're watching a horse race at Belmont, you've got Lucky Strike, you've got Duff Beer, you've got Carlsberg, you've got maybe Kokanee as well. I'm giving a lot of beer analogies. I don't know why it is early, but I'm just saying that there's different technologies that are there in terms of different types of quantum computing technologies for these computers. Maybe you can give us a bit of a brief overview of what the ecosystem on the hardware side looks like. Like, and then I'm going to ask you right after what the software side looks like. That's great. I think what's really important to understand about um, quantum computers is that we're at an early stage where you could almost think about it as um, a bunch of organizations are all pursuing different ways to try and build these quantum computing devices. And it would be sort of like 
if we were back in the early days of computers and somebody was trying to build a vacuum tube and someone else was trying to build a transistor and someone else was trying to build an integrated circuit and you know the conversations that you would have in a in a world like that would be well it's probably easier to build a vacuum tube and to get that up and going but vacuum tubes are so large and are they scalable maybe a transistor is a better path to go but transistors are so much more complicated to build and so you know even getting to one transistor is hard but once you have one transistor it's much more scalable these are exactly the kinds of conversations that are happening right now in the mainstream universal circuit model quantum computing world where we have some people who are trying to essentially take things that are already computers and make them quantum and you have other groups that are trying to take things that are already quantum and make them into computers and even within those two fundamentally different approaches there are all kinds of different devices so for example if you're trying to take something that's already a very quantum mechanical um, entity and turn it into a computer, you might want to start with a photon. And so there are a number of organizations that are trying to build photonic quantum computers where the actual fundamental unit of computing is a photon. Um, but very similarly, there are other groups that are using things called trapped ion systems where the fundamental unit of computing is the quantum information that exists in an ion that is you know, trapped in a magnetic field. And so we don't really know at this point which of those approaches will be more scalable or which one is likely to have you know, longevity. But we do know that there is incredibly diverse efforts occurring right now to pursue both of those paths um, individually. And at the moment, it looks like the ion um, path forward has been more fruitful in the short term. And so we're seeing some really exciting developments around organizations that are building quantum computers that use these trapped ions as the fundamental methods. At the same time, we have groups, um, large companies like IBM and Google and Microsoft are thinking about trying to take what we already know about building um, semiconductor computers and trying to turn them into superconductors that are capable of doing the same kind of quantum computer calculations. And so um, all of this is happening simultaneously. And as you talk about the horse race, there really is, you know, the exact same psychology that goes into analyzing this industry where just because your horse is in the lead currently doesn't mean it has the stamina to make it all the way to the finish line. And so there's kind of a who's out in front first mentality, but there's also sort of the wariness of the tortoise and the hare. And just because, for example, you might be further behind in terms of the number of quantum bits of information that you can put into your device doesn't necessarily mean that your device is a worse device. It might just mean that it's harder to get the first couple of bits going, but it's very scalable. And so for anybody who's really on the sidelines looking into what's happening in hardware and quantum computing, it's a very exciting time because everything is in flux and all of these technologies are rapidly developing and it really does sort of look a little bit like a horse race where you're trying to understand 
who's out in front and do they have the ability to stay out in front. But what's really exciting is because all of these devices are in some sense interchangeable in the same way that you can do the same kind of addition on a, uh, a vacuum tube as you can do with a transistor, essentially you would hope that the same problems that you could run on an ion trap computer would be able to be run on a photonic computer. And so from the perspective of an organization that is trying to build applications for quantum computers, as opposed to trying to pick a horse, instead, you can just cheer on the race because any progress is exciting from the perspective of actually taking these technologies and making them available to industry. Really fascinating stuff. Very exciting. Maybe there will be a show just to just to describe this horse race as it goes along uh, at some point for folks who are interested out there because it's tremendously fascinating and uh, will have a huge impact. So let's talk about the software portion right now and and explain a little bit about what companies such as yours are doing with, as you said, the different kind of horses that you're picking with the photons and then with the ions and 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 what your challenge is. In, in producing that software and then marrying it to the industry and the industrial problems that are out there in the world that you're attempting to solve? Well, in exactly the same um, way, I find it very helpful to use some analogies to classical computing because people are a little bit more familiar with that paradigm. And many of the um, sort of mysteries of quantum computing are actually unhelpful in terms of of understanding the value of these quantum devices. So I think it's really helpful to sort of demystify the actual computers themselves and to really think about the fact that much like a classical computer, um, you know, way back in the day, if somebody brought you a very fundamental early stage um, computing prototype, you would say, oh, great, you've made a device that is capable of adding in binary. Um, that'll be so helpful for all the binary addition that I do as a banker or as, you know, a lawyer. Like all of the people who use computers every day now are clearly not interested in the fundamental capabilities of those devices. Instead, you know, they want to use Microsoft Word or they want to be able to play Minesweeper. Um, and so that idea of being able to understand the native capabilities of a computer in the classical world, that would be something like adding in binary and having the vision to be able to say, wow, if you can add in binary, you could actually make a word processor. It's a pretty big leap, but that leap happens outside of the hardware. That's really the realm of software. And so understanding what are the raw capabilities of these quantum computing devices? And how can I actually connect that to an open need that industry has? Essentially, where are computers today not capable of solving very complicated problems? And is there some sort of overlap there? Is there something that quantum computers can do that classical computers are not very good at? Because if you can do something with a classical computer, and a quantum computer, it's probably better to use a classical computer. They're more advanced. There's better ability to understand. You know, we have many years of hardware development. And so we try and answer two questions. One, 
What can you do with a quantum computer? And that's really where we started. But now we're moving, I think, into a much more interesting question, which is, what should you do with a quantum computer? And I'm sure that's probably an area we should dig into. Well, you also said something very interesting about the potential of quantum computing in the sense that what it does is that it allows us to focus more on what questions we should be asking as humans, which is something that we do very well with our curious minds and our storytelling capabilities, as opposed to trying to solve those problems once we put these fundamental questions out there or very quirky questions. It doesn't have to be very serious all the time. And let the computer do what the computer does best, which is compute and then solve the problem to provide us uh, an answer that could be of usefulness for us, really thinking of the computer as a tool. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that thought, uh, Andrew, for us, because I think it'll help us, again, contextualize why quantum computing is something important to be working on right now? Absolutely. One of the things that's most interesting to understand about um, where we sit as a species in terms of producing new knowledge, especially in certain areas like advanced materials and drug discovery, um, we talk today about drug discovery, material discovery. Um, You know, it's not too far from the truth that the way that you find a new drug today is you go into a you know region of the Amazon, start licking a bunch of trees, and the ones that make you feel funny, you say, hey, there might be something here, and you go and explore why this thing did what it did. Um, and so that's an interesting paradigm, but of course, we're getting much more sophisticated in our understanding of the types of effects that we would like to see. And so you can imagine it's pretty laborsome, uh, laborious, to have to go out into the world and just start trying everything in order to see what it does. That paradigm of discovery can be flipped into a paradigm of design. If you have the ability to say, I can create in a virtual environment a new material that's never actually been created in the real world. And by analyzing it in this virtual world, I have the ability to understand what it would be like if I were able to produce it. And so that allows me to be able to produce a whole bunch of virtual materials, analyze their properties, and select the ones that are most useful for certain applications. So you're really starting by saying, I would like a material that looks like this, and then you can go and design that material in your virtual world. And once you're convinced that you've designed something that will achieve it, then the problem becomes, how do I produce this material that I know I want, instead of I've produced this material that I need to figure out what it's for. And I think that if you can imagine, you know, the ability to search massive amounts of potential materials without having to actually build them first will really expand our ability to produce novel, bespoke materials that are helpful for particular engineering challenges. We think that this will start by producing really basic things like catalysts, very small pieces of matter that speed up or slow down um, different reactions. But 
it will expand from these very small pieces all the way through to more advanced materials, differentiated polymers, and eventually we think into the interactions of the human body and uh, the material world in a way that is really what drugs are, being able to change into a mode of saying, I have this particular challenge occurring in my body, what do I need to produce in order to influence my body to change its behavior? These are deep questions that are not going to be answered overnight, but the journey of the next hundred years of quantum computing is really going to be about having the tools for the first time to have a real shot at solving these problems in a, in a very succinct and detailed way. And so I think that quantum computers are going to make their first mark on the world by really transforming the physical world, allowing us to build materials, for example, that are much stronger and lighter than the ones that exist today or that have particular characteristics that exactly suit the needs of some of the most challenging applications where our current limitation is being able to actually produce the materials that give the desired effect that we want. We often know what we would like, we just don't know how to actually produce those things. And that's one of the big changes that I think um, we'll see coming from quantum computing. You're describing this with regards to materials, but it can also, as you said, be materials for drug discovery. And you've talked a lot in the past about the financial world and a little bit earlier in this podcast as well, in terms of some of the problems that they have in terms of predicting markets and high finance kind of uh, risk assessment and analysis. And very interesting, you know, when you were talking about physics and finance going together, it's quite beautiful and eloquent to see the math there behind that. So great stuff. We're looking now at what one qubit is within that realm. You know, you've said that one qubit acts as a bridge between the technology at the fundamental level, the new hardware that's being produced, and the real-world applications. Outside of uh, DAO, can you give us a few more industries or sectors that you're interfacing with and what kinds of problems that they've been presenting you, just so we can, as uh, as as students uh, studying the, the, the business portion of this kind of understand the potential of your of your market? Yeah, I really like um, exactly the setup that you just gave, because I think that the uh, analogy of computational finance, the traditional method of computational finance, is a great allegory for how we could see the development of quantum computing. And that is to say, um, many of the uh, initial uses of traditional computers within the finance world came from repurposing algorithms that were designed in order to simulate the physical world. For example, um, a lot of the work that was done in options pricing, which is sort of a computationally expensive or a challenging form of calculation that's helpful to know how much you should pay for a particular financial instrument, is really all about repurposing algorithms that were initially designed in order to correct the trajectory of rockets. And so in the same way that you could say, well, back in the day, computers were used to simulate the physical world in order to help to guide rockets. And then that form of mathematics was repurposed into the financial market 
in order to provide capabilities that seem very far from the initial area of exploration, but that opened up in entire new areas for computation and new areas of human understanding. We think that some of the algorithms that are first developed in order to do the simulation of the physical world through a quantum information lens can then be repurposed into different areas uh, in order to provide real value outside of phys physically simulating the physical world. So a great example would be, we believe that some of the fundamental calculations that are helpful to simulate the physical world can also be used to animate new forms of machine learning, and in some cases, old forms of machine learning, where the bottleneck to wider adoption was just that the computational capabilities of classical computers didn't mate nicely with the problems that were necessary to solve in order to harness these forms of machine learning. And so if we can take some of the interesting sampling capabilities of quantum processors that are developed in order to do material discovery and repurpose that into a more abstract information processing to animate forms of machine learning, you could imagine similar algorithms being deployed in order to produce much more robust artificial intelligences, for example. And that's the kind of exciting work that really only, you can only make those connections if you have both a great understanding of, um, say, the materials industry and a very detailed understanding of the quantum devices that are uh, going to be applied to solving those problems. Then comes the third step of being able to take those technologies and apply them to an adjacent field. And so one qubit has actually developed as a very interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary collaborative approach where we try and bring together researchers from very different fields in order to understand where those through points might be and to really um, help produce innovation at those edges that are sort of between different spaces. And that's been an exciting part of the one qubit journey. I asked Andrew to unpack how we got from the idea of quantum computers in the 1980s to where we are today, and what one qubit's relationship was with one of their quantum hardware suppliers, D-Wave. Quantum computers as an idea have been around since the 1980s, sort of in the same way that you could say time machines have been around you know, since the 1800s in that people have thought about them. And it's only really right at this moment that we're starting to see the first realizations of that idea um, come to fruition. The first devices that could really be called quantum computers in the way that people imagined um, that quantum computers might evolve. And so this moment is really the fulfillment of a journey that started in the 1980s um, saying, I think you could probably build a machine that looks like for example, an ION-Q, ION-TRAP device. And now we're just starting to see those things emerge. Um, when I was speaking earlier about the different types of quantum computers, I uh, intentionally really spoke about what people usually mean when they talk about a quantum computer, which is a universal circuit model quantum device. 
But you can also do many different types of calculations utilizing um, these same types of quantum information processing fundamentals. And so, for example, in traditional computing, um, there are digital computers, um, which are the types of computers that most of us are familiar with, but there are also analog computers, um, computers that really operate less in sort of the uh, uh, binary, you know, zero and one realm, but instead operate on kind of a, a continuous um, spectrum. And these are um, much less common, but the history of traditional computing is one of both analog and uh, digital computers. We have the same distinction within quantum computers. And so an organization like D-Wave made a decision early on to try and say, maybe universal circuit model quantum computers um, will emerge in the distant future. But D-Wave um, really has its roots all the way back to 1999. And they made a very conscious choice to say, let's try and see if there's something that you can do with quantum information processing, which isn't as challenging as building a universal quantum computer, but which can still solve very specific problems. Um, you could think of it as an application-specific quantum information processor. Um, and that concept shouldn't be too foreign to your listeners because, for example, the rise of machine learning has been heavily um, advanced by GPUs or graphics processing units, which are themselves application-specific computing components. So the D-Wave machine, the D-Wave quantum annealer, is an analog quantum computer that is specifically designed in order to answer what are called quadratic unconstrained binary optimizations, but which really just mean answering an optimization problem. So they're not able to perform things like Shor's algorithm that might be used in the future to break encryption. It's not particularly useful for doing the sorts of um, chemistry applications that we were talking about previously, although there are some simulation capabilities of these machines. Um, but in general, it's about saying, what's the low-hanging fruit and how do I uh, try and take a shortcut to a useful device by making a specific thing for a specific purpose instead of trying to build um, a device that does all of the rich capabilities that we anticipate for future quantum computing devices. And there's actually an entire subset of the quantum computing market that is um, all across the spectrum that goes from, for example, um, one of our partners, Fujitsu, has built an application-specific integrated circuit which simulates the uh, annealing process. And so we call it a digital annealer. Um, this is sort of the most classical exploration of the capabilities of near-term quantum computing devices. The D-Wave machine is, again, one of these analog machines, but there is other work that is being done um, that has the capability to do some of that analog computing, including our partners at NTT have some very exciting um, devices which utilize exotic forms of computation in order to answer these same sorts of problems. And even ion trap computers, 
are capable of doing analog computation. And so I think the, um, the journey from no quantum computers through to universal fault tolerant error corrected quantum computers is one that we don't know exactly what that path might look like, but some organizations have said, let's try and take sort of a minimum viable product approach as opposed to going for sort of a waterfall approach of step one, build a big quantum computer, and instead saying, how can we build a specific quantum calculator? And so even aside from the types of distinctions that I drew at the beginning, where we were talking about the difference between photons and ions and superconducting machines, there are different types of devices that you can make with those different um, uh, components. And the D-Wave machine is one exploration of a specific type of, of machine. And of course, D-Wave is a company um, who could build uh, or which could build many different types of devices. But the current D-Wave processors have really been looking at this um, sort of niche and specific idea of optimization and a few other adjacent fields as sort of a toehold into this wider world of quantum computing. And what's nice is with such a diversity of approaches and a diversity of fundamental units of computing, we really have a whole bunch of different ways of trying to build these initial devices that make it so that there's this plurality of approaches that's really exciting for someone who is trying to harness these new capabilities because each of these different machines have different strengths and weaknesses and time horizons. And so as somebody thinking about applications, we really cheer on that diversity. I asked Andrew to clarify the idea of using quantum computing to that of using a utility. I think about um, the distinction of a computing utility versus a computing product as something that we're all actually intimately familiar with now. Um, because if you use almost any application on your computer today, um, you're not just using your local computer, you're using the computing of the cloud. So for example, um, I actually have very little understanding of what types of computation happen on the back end of making a request to something like Google Maps. Um, you know, you just want to know how do I get from here to there? You're able to clearly articulate the problem. You say, I am currently in this location. I would like to get to that location. Please give me the steps that I need to take in order to, to go there. You send that off to the cloud. They do some processing on the back end. It might be done with CPUs or GPUs or FPGAs or in the future, quantum computers. But the important thing is I don't really care as a consumer. I just want to make sure that I'm getting the best directions um, and that I'm able to get from here to there with the least number of turns, spending the least gas, et cetera. And that's how I think that quantum computing is actually going to be um, most widely deployed into people's lives is in a way where it's almost invisible. Um, meaning the applications, if we do things well, you're not going to be excited about utilizing a quantum computer because it's a quantum computer. You're just going to be excited that you get better directions from Google Maps, for example. Um, that's a purely hypothetical example, but I think it illustrates the difference between 
you know, buying a computing device versus just getting the utility that comes from that knowledge. And so the way that we imagine interacting with quantum computers um, in the medium term is actually exactly the same way that one qubit interacts with computers today, which is, you know, if we're interested in solving a chemistry problem, then we engage with a, uh, a cloud hosted quantum computer. We take the industrial framing of the problem and convert it into a form that the quantum computer is able to understand. We then pass that information to the quantum computer, which solves the problem in its native form. We then take that solution and interpret it back into the language of the industrial problem. And so ultimately, the industrial user just gets a solution to the problem that they're looking at, whether it's something like, how should I build this material or what are the properties of this material or, you know, what should I trade in a financial market? Ultimately, the reason that these things are useful is not because they're using quantum information to solve those problems. It's because they're providing better answers than the next best alternative that we have available. And the idea that the product is really the answer from the computer as opposed to the computer itself is that distinction. And of course, because cloud computing already works this way, and actually the initial architecture and use of computers was many people sharing time on these big mainframes, this is not really a departure from the longer history of computation. In fact, it's more the general, uh, the norm as opposed to the exception. One qubit's perspective is that um, exactly as I just described, people ultimately won't want to use quantum computers for the sake of quantum computers. They'll want to use applications that harness quantum computers to provide better answers because they care about better answers. So one qubit's approach is to say, we have some visibility into the types of industries that are likely to be augmented by or disrupted by quantum computers. And so our interest is in getting into those industries, getting out in front of quantum computers. And so as opposed to the capabilities coming along and then saying, wow, we should really think about getting into quantum chemistry. Instead, we're getting into quantum chemistry knowing that success within quantum computers will provide a really unique advantage. And so to the extent that we believe that quantum computers or exotic forms of computation might augment machine learning capabilities, we have been doing a lot of work to be able to commercialize current methods of artificial intelligence within industries that we think are relevant to quantum computers so that if quantum computers provide new capabilities, we're already in the industries that can benefit from those capabilities. And so that's what we've tried to do over and over again, is to be positioning ourselves to be the best positioned organization to harness the capabilities of these devices, while at the same time using those insights to partner with the hardware organizations and to do our own fundamental research to understand how could you build better devices that are more capable of accelerating these industries. One Qubit received funding from Canada's Digital Supercluster, a government-sponsored program focused on fostering innovation in digital technology companies. Andrew elaborates. One of the things that we believe is that 
there is a real capability for quantum information processing to augment the capabilities of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And so in order to prove that there is real industrial value, we think that it's very valuable to be out in the marketplace selling products and services that take advantage of that fundamental artificial intelligence capability. And in the case of the supercluster work, um, we have produced a software suite that is capable of providing a co-pilot for radiologists, essentially helping them um, understand and to point out more abnormalities within uh, our first product was uh, a chest x-ray anomaly detector that's useful for detecting the types of pneumonias that can come from things like um, the, the current COVID uh, pandemic. And so by essentially having a product that harnesses the state of the art in machine learning capabilities, we know that to the extent that that state of the art is advanced by any of the technologies that we work with in our hardware innovation lab, we now have a path all the way from the hardware right to the industrial output, which is in this case, better outcomes for people in the Canadian health system. And we have the ability to say, if I swapped out my current processor for this new device, does that further improve the outcomes? And to the extent that that answer is yes, then we know that that's a useful advancement on the hardware. And to the extent that the answer is no, we know that that hardware is not yet ready for commercialization. Essentially, we use the industrial reality as the measuring stick by which we judge the meaningfulness of any of these advances on the hardware side. While the market adoption of the technology is a key measuring stick for one qubit's success, the advancement of pure science is also important to the company. As a geek, I think, um, and, and I, I should say as a team of geeks, I think all of us really have a, a soft spot for advancing technology, um, you know, just purely from a scientific perspective. But because we're doing this in the context of a business, of course, the real measuring stick is, are you able to produce more value um, than what it costs to get there? And so I think we love to produce technology because we believe technology produces value and utilizing our market success as a measuring stick is a very helpful way to ensure that we're not just climbing Mount Everest because it's there. The development of quantum computing will come from partnerships from core quantum companies like OneQubit with various industry players to help solve problems in their respective fields and to find new opportunities to develop applications using the power of quantum technology. In this spirit of collaboration, I asked Andrew to put out a question for our audience to ask him what he would like to see people studying OneQubit to be working on. Here's what he had to say. Well, you know, back to your point previously of how long people have been thinking about quantum computers, um, it's very interesting that some of the most uh, important algorithms in quantum computers were developed before those quantum computers really existed. A great example is Shor's algorithm, the um, procedure that you would take with a quantum computer in order to improve the factoring capabilities of um, our, our computational capabilities as humanity. Um, this is very exciting because it shows that even without access to a quantum computer, if you understand the fundamentals 
of quantum computing, you can develop applications without even having access of these machines. What's really different today um, than when Peter Shore was first thinking of Shore's algorithm is now we actually have fledgling quantum computers that we can use to test those assumptions. But what I would recommend is that as opposed to trying to um, think about quantum computing in this sort of abstract, you know, it's just a more powerful computer. If you really want to make an impact in this field, the first thing you need to do is to put in the work to understand how these machines really operate at a low level. And then you can use your creativity and imagination to expand the fundamental computing capabilities at the sort of low level, the what you might think of as the building blocks upon which you can build applications. Because at the moment, we actually have a very small number of these building blocks. Um, and I think that as more people put their minds toward this, we're going to see that although there's maybe five or six really exciting fundamentals that we're aware of right now, there are probably thousands more that just haven't been discovered because not enough people have been thinking about this. So I love the idea of more people first learning about how these machines work at a low level and then imagining what other things they could do. That's going to really blow up this industry and help expand the usefulness of quantum computers to many different areas that we can't even imagine today. All right. Well, let's make that happen. <laughs> That's very exciting, Andrew. Thank you so much. Uh, anything else you would like to add? I just want to say thanks for the opportunity to uh, connect with your listeners. And to the extent that people are interested in learning more about this, of course, they can visit our website at onecubit.com. And for people who are really exciting to, they're excited to dig in and maybe think a little more, OneCubit's always bringing on interns and practitioners. We're expanding all across Canada from um, Vancouver uh, into uh, Calgary and Edmonton. We have great partnerships with uh, the Saskatchewan Health Authority that's been important for that super cluster work that you talked about. We have new um, offices opening up in uh, Quebec and we have a deep partnership in Sherbrooke. And so we're trying to take sort of a pan-Canadian approach to quantum computing for the benefit of all humanity. And if you're excited about that, we'd love to hear from you. That's all for today, folks. There is so much more we could discuss with quantum computing, and we haven't even touched upon adjacent topics such as quantum communication networks and quantum sensor technologies. If you'd like to share further research on the quantum ecosystem, write us at solutions at ie-knowledgehub.ca, and we'll add links to our episode page to keep the conversation going. And now a final word from our sponsor, IE Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub is a website dedicated to promoting learning and exchanges on international entrepreneurship. If you are an education professional looking for course content, an academic researcher seeking research material, or someone interested in business innovation, check out IE Knowledge Hub. Let's pick up where we left off for PrevTech Microbia, a small biotechnology company creating live bacterial vaccines to help counter E. coli in swine. We had to take a decision what we'll do with it. At that time, we were thinking more to, 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 to develop and to provide to the veterinarians. It was not a business uh, sense. It was, okay, then we have this, the veterinarian needed. What we can do to transfer this to the veterinarian? That's Eric Nadeau, co-founder of PrevTech Microbia. 
Nadeau is describing the ideation behind creating PrevTech. He had developed the Coliprotec vaccine as a postdoc student under the supervision of Dr. John Fairbrother, a world expert on E. coli. He knew his technology could work, but how could he get from the university science lab to building a business? We went through all the process into the university, and we have to do declaration of invention, and after that to convince the dean of the faculty that our project is solid. And it was difficult for them because we, we had Jennifer Brother as a fundamental scientist and not a business person. And his dolphin, a young postdoctoral student. And it, was, it took two years to convince <laughs> the faculty and the university by itself, the Invest in Montreal. To help them get up and running, the firm hired an experienced CEO, Michel Fortin. Fortin knew that to be able to make PrevTech into a profitable business, he had to get the regulatory approval in the right markets. When I started with the company, we had the first vaccine, which was Caliprotec F4, which is for a specific disease in the swine industry. And our objective was first to get this product approved in Canada, to distribute it in Canada, which is our own base, which was easier for us to do all the tests and do everything that is required to get to that license or regulatory approval with the objective that after that, once we get the first product out in Canada, to take this product to other countries to have a global approach. And one of the first opportunity was going to be in Brazil, because Brazil is a very large production of swine. And also the regulatory people work very closely with the regulatory people of Canada. So with our Canadian dossier, we were able to start the regulatory process in Brazil without incurring very, very expensive costs. Then after that, we decided to get our product to be distributed in Europe. Why Europe? We are an alternative to antibiotics, which is getting control and or banned. So it was a prime market for us. You've been listening to segments of the PrevTech Microbia video case study. Learn more about how to take a technology from the laboratory to the market by watching their full case available for free at ie-knowledgehub.ca. Market Hunt is produced by Cartouche Media in collaboration with Serotone Studios in Montreal and Pop-Up Podcasting in Ottawa. Market Hunt is part of the IE Knowledge Hub Network. Funding for this program comes from the Social Sciences and Humanities Resource Council of Canada. Executive producers, Hamid Etamad, McGill University, Des Hotels Faculty of Management, and Hamid Motagi, Université de Québec en Outaouais. Associate producer, Jose Orlando Montez, Université du Québec à Montréal. Technical producers, Simon Petraki, Serotone Studio, and Lisa Carrito, Pop-Up Podcasting. Show consultant, J.P. Davidson. Artwork by Melissa Jandro. Voiceover, Katie Harrington. You can check out the IE Knowledge Hub case study at ie-knowledgehub.ca. For Market Hunt, I'm Thierry Harris. Thanks for listening. <laughs>